0: you <music> Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Miscelli and Margaret Flinter. This week we welcome Pulitzer Prize winning science writer for The Atlantic, Ed Young, on the grim milestone of a million American deaths from
1: COVID. There is no way of getting the risk of spillover and the risk of future pandemics down to zero, which means that we must be ready to intercept and deal with new pathogens when they arrive.
0: We hear from FactCheck.org's Managing Editor, Lori Robertson, and we end with a bright idea, improving everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Miscelli
2: and Margaret Flinter. The 2021 Pulitzer Prize Board said our guest reporting was a, quote, series of lucid definitive pieces on the COVID-19 pandemic that anticipated the course of the disease, illuminated the U.S. government's failure, and provided clear and accessible context for the scientific and human challenges it posed.
0: Ed Young is a staff writer for The Atlantic and also a book author. He's been an independent guide for all of us during this pandemic. His story, titled How the Pandemic Will End, is one of the most read pieces in The Atlantic's history.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ed. But before we get to COVID, let's just start out with the news about the Supreme Court draft that apparently will result in each state's needing to decide if abortions are legal. You focus in on how science is engaging with the realm of politics, policy, and real patients. Wondering what perspective and insights you can bring to the abortion story at this time.
1: Uh, Look, I'm just going to say that abortion is healthcare. I think the ethics are very clear here. And um, I'm not going to say any more about it because I've not reported on it. I think the pandemic has been characterized by a lot of people straying well outside their realms of expertise. And unless I've actually done the work, I'm not going to opine on something that, that I'm not intimately familiar with.
0: Well, then let's turn to COVID. We've heard the grim news showing 1 million Americans have died from this virus. Roughly 30% of Americans are likely never to be fully vaccinated. Is this one of the most surprising parts of the COVID story? Uh,
1: I I don't think it's even slightly surprising. Um, I think if you look at attitudes around vaccinations that long preceded COVID, you could very easily see all the seeds for what we're currently seeing now. Um, it is neither surprising that much of the U.S. decided not to get vaccinated despite the the efficacy of the vaccines, nor is it surprising that many people in the biomedical establishment were surprised by this. Um, I think that we as a country have long had a very technocratic um, mindset towards health problems that like we have sought solutions to large social problems through the fruits of the biomedical research inter- enterprise. And while um, those things are undoubtedly um, fantastic, they also have a limitation. The problem here is that a vaccine is a product, and being a very tech-focused nation, we assume that once we got the product, we would fix the problem. But a vaccine is useless without vaccination, and vaccination is a system, and the US is riddled with broken, inefficient systems. So vaccine delivery and access depends on things like whether people have vaccination sites near them. Even the most um, recalcitrant anti-vaccine attitudes have the social dimension to them. They come down to things like trust, trust in the government. Types of trust are sorely lacking um, in, in the US. I think in part because you can't expect people to buy into a, like an intervention like this if they just don't believe that the government has their backs. And of course, in a situation like this, where people in positions of power now are saying, do this thing. A lot of people are going to go like, why this thing and not all the other things that, that would have made our lives better that haven't been um, rolled out before now. So the problems that we've seen in vaccine uptake are very much a part of all the other problems that have, cu- that have cost the US, uh, the U.S. response so dearly. And I hope it's a chance for the medical establishment to have a bit of a wake up call and think about how it's thinking about how to solve these very large, difficult problems.
2: Four years ago, you wrote an incredible article with the headline, The Next Plague is Coming, Is America Ready? And it's literally a terrifying uh, read uh, how much you accurately nailed down what was ahead of us. Uh, Here's a direct quote from that 2018 article. The White House is now home to a president who is neither calm nor science-minded. I'm wondering if your reporting shows how different political leadership could have saved lives in 2020.
1: Um, I think having a president who was actively downplaying the pandemic, who was hyping up um, false miracle cures, um, really didn't help matters. There is a very interesting question to be asked about whether if we had a different president, someone more science minded, let's say if Biden was president at the start of the pandemic, would things have been better? And honestly, I'm not sure the answer is yes. I look at how things have progressed over the last year and a half, despite, as you say, vaccines being available, a new, supposedly more science-minded presidency, and yet we still seem to be making the same mistakes again. More people have died since then than in the preceding phase of the pandemic. And I think, again, that should force us to question some of our assumptions. Um, I'm not saying that the Trump presidency was blameless, but I also think that people who are pointing to it and it alone as the reason why the U.S. has failed so badly, we have had, I think that in some ways, the theatrical incompetence of the Trump presidency makes it very easy to think that's the sole problem, and it distracts from the more banal forms of incompetence that we have seen since um, both administrations um, have gone very hard on this very individualistic stance on the pandemic, this idea that we're going to use biomedical countermeasures, pharmaceutical interventions to get our way out of this without having to put in the work things like masking, ventilations, testing, all the rest that would protect the health of the population at large. Both have failed in their own specific ways to really shore up public health at a time we really need it. And I think that Trump was deeply um, problematic and wrong in his approach to the pandemic. But I think if the only lesson we learned, it was all on Trump, I think we have absolutely learned the wrong lesson. The problem was in the rootstock. The problems are foundational and longstanding and fundamental.
0: I'd like to then move on to talk uh, about your article on how the pandemic will end. Dr. Fauci says the acute phase of the pandemic is over. What's your reporting telling you about what's likely to happen?
1: I think everyone who's been reporting on this knows that predicting even the near-term future of the pandemic is very difficult. I've just been interviewing healthcare workers today across the country, and they really range the gamut from everything looks fine in my hospital to we are nearing the way things were at the height of the Omicron surge in terms of new emissions. So Things are varied and things are going to be difficult to predict. I think that we as a society and and certainly in my profession of journalism have this tendency to be very laser focused on the present. We want to know what is happening right now. And that tendency um, blinds us to, I think, one of the biggest and and most difficult aspects of the pandemic, which is that its toll is cumulative. The story isn't what is happening right now. The story is what has happened altogether over the last two and a half years. And if you look at that, you'll see that certain groups have been disproportionately impacted by what has happened. So healthcare workers are one very obvious one. Um, the people I've talked to have been pummeled by relentless surges, you know, and have been repeatedly traumatized by the horrors of what they've seen in a way that isn't just going to go over, even if, as Fauci claims, the acute phase of the pandemic um, may or may not be over. But even if that's true, we're not grappling with all everything that's happened before that point. So long haulers are another group that has um, that have borne the disproportionate and long-term consequences of two plus years of failing to control COVID. Um, huge number of them um, are still grappling with long-term symptoms. Many of them have recently experienced a two-year anniversary of, of, of mm. symptoms. I've written pieces about people who are grieving their loved ones. You know, by some estimates, nine million plus Americans who lost someone very close to them to COVID. Many of the people, including those who lost people in the very early phases of the pandemic, are still grieving. They haven't had rituals of collective mourning. And it's almost like they had to lock their grief in a time capsule, which is now reopening as much as society has decided to itself reopen. They feel raging and sorrowful all over again. You know, I am concentrating my reporting right now on the groups of people for whom the pandemic very much isn't over. Immunocompromised people are another group in, in it, like this. The question, when is it over? When is it going to end? And I think for a long time now, the real and most important question has been, who has to bear the risk that remains? And what can we do to protect and care for them? That's how I'm thinking about the future. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering, as a
2: journalist, how do you answer critics who say, The media have filled the country with so much anxiety and worry that they've turned off readers and viewers that has caused confusion in so many people's minds.
1: My duty as a reporter is to be honest and fair. Um, And if things are bad, I'm going to tell people that things are bad. If things are good, I'm going to say that things are good. But the problem is that the pandemic is multifaceted. Things have been bad for a long time. And... The fact that things have been bad for a long time doesn't mean that we suddenly throw our hands up in the air and say things are good now because we're tired. I think that's actually where a lot of people have got to. I, I think it represents a failure in our duty as, as truth-tellers. Um, we should also be holding power to account. A very time-worn phrase in journalism is that it's about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And I think that actually we've done the opposite of those two things uh, as a field for the last year and a half. I think journalists were among the people who got easiest and earliest access to vaccinations. And many people simply decided that the pandemic was over and that it was safe because they themselves were safe. It became especially clear um, in the Omicron surge. Um, and it continues to be a problem now. Like Rather than focusing our attention on the groups of people who are most likely, who have been most harmed, we're sort of privileging people who are in the wealthiest, safest, most secure positions. And, you know, this sort of ties back to my early answers about the, the pros and cons of medical interventions, right? The, the problem here is that epidemics and medical interventions flow in opposite directions. So epidemics grow, flow downwards into society's cracks, taking out the most marginalized people along different axes. Medical interventions flow upwards into society's penthouses. They are um, accessed easiest and earliest by people with privilege, wealth, money, connections and power. Those people then decide the thing is over and they move on. And this problem was identified by folks like Bruce Link and Joe Phelan decades ago in their theory of fundamental causes. They talked about this as one, as a factor behind the um, ongoing and persistent inequalities in health in the country even though the specific pathogen of the day might change, or even though medical progress is ostensibly made, why are the same disparities persistent? Why are the same people suffering over and over again, whether it's with polio or HIV or now COVID? It's because of this dynamic. And I think that we in the media are complicit in that, and we should try and push against it.
0: Well, Ed, we've also read your tough reporting about the public health field, Uh, And note your writing that public health, in your words, willingly silenced its own political voice through the years. But public health stakeholders are speaking out at all levels now about racism, equity and climate change. Are you seeing significant signs of a change? Is that generational or is the field just grappled with its necessity to speak out on these issues?
1: There was a time in the sort of early 20th century when public health um, had this more of an understanding of the social dimensions of disease, the idea that things like poverty and um, inequality and lack of education, poor housing, poor sanitation, all the rest, were profoundly influenced which communities got sick and which didn't. And it also led um, the field to be less political, less socially minded, less focused on action and fixing these large community-wide problems and instead um, you know, queuing to this medical model of looking down a microscope and finding a way of annihilating the bug in question. Um, that has been the case, I think, for, for many decades in the early 20th century. It, there's the rise of social epidemiology, the understanding of the social determinants of health. Over the course of the pandemic, we have people um, from across the public health sphere really grappling with the uh, effects of racism on public health, the idea of racism as a public health crisis. But I think that that transition is nowhere near complete. But there are certainly many prominent voices who I feel who have um, promoted this very, very individualistic way of thinking about the pandemic that is contrary to the very tenets of public health this idea that um, coping with the pandemic is now a matter of individual responsibility. Um, I think this is antithetical to public health for at least two reasons. The the field should be about the health of the population. It's not just, it's, it's about the health of the collective. And especially in case of a pandemic, when individual risk only gets us so far, my health is profoundly influenced by the choices of the people around me. But also my circumstances constrain my choices uh, i lead a very privileged life and i have the option of doing a lot of things to protect myself um, people from low income groups and marginalized groups don't have the same luxuries and public health should be focused on them they should be focused on um, the people who have the highest risk of um, infection and long-term disability and death the people who have the least options for accessing vaccines or treatments or protecting themselves and I actually think that a lot of leaders in this space have done the opposite. They've sort of privileged that much more um, privilege the privilege. They've um, thought about the pandemic really through this very individualistic mindset that I think seems to be contrary to the, the, the ethos of the entire field.
2: You know, I couldn't agree with you more. The work that we do in our in our daily life is providing uh, health care to underserved populations. I think this notion of uh, the collective is so important. How do you see that translating? It seems to me that the public health system has somewhat been eviscerated Prior to the pandemic, how do you see that change of philosophy translating into public policy?
1: So right, and I think this is the the big challenge for the field right now. Um, you know, the the public health historians I've talked to have have made made this argument, which I think is is very solid, that the field sort of shifting towards this biomedical paradigm um, in abandoning like it, its its kind of social roots, um, also like narrowed itself right. So it abandoned um, alliances. Um, that, that animated it in the early 20th century and, and it contributed to its own marginalization. But it's very hard to write the ship. You know, public health has um, famously been underfunded for the better part of a century and, and continues to be, despite um, everything we've okay. seen in the pandemic. So how are a group of people um, who don't have enough funding, who are now being sort of harassed and vilified, meant to tackle problems as vast as um, racial inequality, as poverty? You know, the, the, It's it's surely beyond the mandate of, of public health to, to even think about these problems. and And yet it very much is within their mandate, right? Because as we've said, like, these problems are public health problems. We're not gonna to get to a better situation with the next pandemic without fixing them. So, so what do we do? The, the thing that gives me the most hope is seeing the rise of a lot of grassroots activists groups, mm. um, people who are fiercely um, campaigning for change um, in public health, in healthcare, in, in, in all the rest. Public health, as it currently defines itself, cannot do this problem alone, but it doesn't have to do this problem alone because there are other folks um, from all different aspects of society who are also doing that kind of work and who might not even think of themselves as working in public health, like housing advocates. I have seen so so many groups who've um, cropped up in communities of grievers and communities of long haulers and immunocompromised communities, people who have said enough, Like we are not going to let ourselves ignored and neglected and marginalized any further. And I think there is, there's power in that. And I think there's especially power when the, when those groups start to link up with each other, as I see them currently doing. It, the pandemic has been so far reaching. That's part of its tragedy. But I think that's part of the current opportunity mm-hmm. where the, the, the groups of people who have been disproportionately affected are so vast in number that they could have a very strong presence in advocacy and in shaping our collective future moving forward. It's hard to be too optimistic about it. We've seen a lot of moves that I think will make us much less prepared for the next pandemic. You know, we talked about the panic-neglect cycle a lot, this idea that once a crisis hits, everyone freaks out because they're underprepared. But then once things get better, um, attention and investments are pulled away We didn't even have to wait for the thing to be over this time, right? We have cascaded through multiple cycles of neglect, even while the pandemic um, has been in its acute phase. But there are large groups of people who who refuse to let the lessons of the last few years uh, be forgotten.
0: Well, and if people needed a reminder about why we need to sustain uh, this kind of energy, you've written that new research shows that climate-driven animal migrations are likely to make pandemics more likely uh, in the future. Maybe just share with our listeners why is this so and fill us in on what is called the pandemic scene. Uh,
1: to be clear, the pandemic scene is a word that I made up to describe. Oh. Oh, uh, me- meologizing me as well. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yes. um, well, so there was a, this story was about a study um, about the ways in which climate change is going to affect our risk of pandemics. So as the world warms, animals are going to be forced to relocate to new habitats to track the environments that they are best adapted to. Um, As this happens, species that never previously coexisted will suddenly encounter each other for the first time, creating opportunities for their distinct groups of viruses to jump into new hosts and eventually into us. Their study um, shows that they are going to happen, that these kinds of spillovers will happen disproportionately in the areas where humans are likely to inhabit, which is bad news for us, and I think worst of all, that they have already been going on, that this process is well underway, and we are sort of in the peak era of these new um, first encounters and new animal-to-animal spillovers. Um, and and because we already live in a world that's 1.2 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels, um, that's plenty warm enough for this to happen. Even if from now on we curb all carbon emissions, we still have to cope with the consequences of what we have unleashed and what is going to happen in the near term future. This, this, this pandemic scene, as I've called it, once unleashed, cannot be rebottled. We now have to learn to cope with it. Everything we've gone through over the last two and a half years will happen again. It, it just will. I think there's this sort of feeling and hope that this is a once in a generation mm-hmm. event. And I would certainly love it if that was the case. But I think it will happen again within my lifetime. And I think we will see at least one new emerging or re-emerging disease within the next few years. And we have to be prepared for it. Now, in like, um, That 2018 piece that you asked, we talk about things like surveillance systems, we talk about things like preparing vaccines for the most likely dangerous pathogens ahead of time. We absolutely need to do all of those things, but there is no way of getting the risk of spillover and the risk of future pandemics down to zero. Which means that we must be ready to intercept and deal with new pathogens when they arise. And that means that we need to fix those social problems that cost so many people dearly this pandemic and the ones that are going to cost us so dearly in the next one. Normal led to this. Mm-hmm. And so we need a different, better normal.
2: Ed, speaking of things that you wrote, you have a book coming out in June titled uh, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. I wonder if you could just share a little bit about that. I know our readers who follow you religiously would be interested in knowing, getting a little
1: uh, preview. So An Immense World is about um, how other animals sense the world around <laughs> them, um, and it's about how um, each species, humans included, only perceive a very thin sliver of all there is to perceive. Um, so other creatures see different colours that we do, they detect um, you know, movements in water that we can't feel, they detect electric and magnetic fields that we can't sense. And thinking about the senses of other animals allows us to perceive things that might be familiar and everyday to us in a radically new and kind of magical way. When I go for a walk with my dog, I'm, I hope that for people who read it, that the book is um, a a source of joy and wonder at a time when... Um, many of lo- much of our lives have been dominated by um, by darkness and, and sadness. Um, these are, are rough times, and uh, I'm not going to pretend that reading my book is going to fix any of the, the vast systemic and social problems that we've discussed here, but I hope that it gives people a little shot um, of warmth into their soul um, at a time when I think that we all need a bit of that right now.
0: You know, they say that journalism is the first draft of history, and you have so vividly captured this very challenging period. And thank you to our audience for joining us. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare. You can sign up uh, for our updates at chcradio.com. Ed, thank you so much for your writing uh, and for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on folks. I appreciate it. Take care of yourselves.
3: Those who are not vaccinated against COVID-19 are more prone to serious illness and are dying at higher rates than those who are vaccinated. But partisan social media accounts, including a post by a member of former President Donald Trump's campaign legal team, continue to misleadingly suggest the vaccines are unnecessary and discourage their use. On April 8th, Democratic Representative Frank Pallone of New Jersey announced on Twitter that he had tested positive for COVID-19. Pallone, who is 70, also wrote, quote, "'Thankfully I'm vaccinated and double boosted, so my symptoms are mild.'" Shortly after that, Jenna Ellis, a lawyer who served on former President Trump's legal team, responded with a tweet that read, quote, "'Why are these idiots still thanking the vaccine?' stop pushing the vax," end quote. But Ellis' suggestion that there is little difference in outcomes from COVID-19 among the vaccinated and unvaccinated is just plain wrong. Data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show significantly higher rates of hospitalization for COVID-19 patients who are unvaccinated compared with those who are fully vaccinated. For Pallone's age range, adults 65 and older, the rate of unvaccinated patients per 100,000 who were hospitalized was 79, while the rate for vaccinated patients was 15 for the week ending February 26. Those rates were down from a high of 481 for the unvaccinated, And 55 for the vaccinated in January. Data presented to the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee on April 6 show that for immunocompetent adults 65 years old and above, those who received a booster dose had an 88% lower risk of COVID-19 hospitalization than the unvaccinated four to six months later. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
0: Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. There are lots of anecdotal studies supporting music's ability to trigger memory or boost endurance or focus. This is the question that intrigued scientists. Keiki Kuranam, a systems biology PhD from Harvard, who wondered how could music be scientifically harnessed as a powerful precision medicine tool? They formed the Sync Project with a cross-section of neuroscientists, biologists, audio engineers, even some rock stars like Peter Gabriel and started by using artificial intelligence systems to analyze existing playlists that purport to promote relaxation, induce sleep, enhance focus, or athletic performance.
4: And once we have this Set up songs that our machine learning algorithms predict to be effective for a specific activity. We can then run studies using these devices, like your you know heart rate monitors, your smart watches and actually look at how effective indeed is that song for that purpose.
0: Karanam and her colleagues note that most of us self-medicate with music already. So why not harness this ubiquitous tool that's available to all of us and develop strategies and systems that
4: might replace pharmacological interventions with musical ones? So we're literally walking around with, you know, 14 million songs in our pocket every single day. So, we saw great opportunity on really being able to understand how different types of music affect both our psychological health as well as our physiology.
0: Karanam and her team see vast potential for reducing reliance on drugs by crafting personalized music interventions in the management of a variety of complex conditions, such as pain management, PTSD, even Parkinson's disease.
4: In Parkinson's disease, patients have trouble coordinating movements. So, by playing them the right kind of music, it can be an external auditory support they have that's going to help them walk more smoothly.
0: The Sync Project, combining computer technology and neuroscience, physiology, and musicology to harness the healing powers inherent in music. Now that is a bright idea.
2: You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.